0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Brew a Banner, where we focus on the cafe life, the barista hustle, and just overall coffee banner. We're going to keep on chatting and talking about the process of coffee, and today we're going to dig into economics. Grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy. Well, welcome, Lisa. Um... A little bit what we've done so far is kind of in this series is really talk about plant biology and we just thought that'd be a a great place to start Um, and yeah once you kind of get to know a little bit about the plant I think you also wonder how this plant gets to us right. Um, I think a lot of things we always ask ourselves is how are we a part of any system. And it's just great to actually kind of dig into a little bit of economics and learn about the market and establish some definitions and kind of just look in how we're involved, but also the history of everything that we can kind of just understand where we're at, kind of maybe some topics of where we're going. Um, But yeah, welcome, Um, Lisa is a guru in economics, and she loves nothing more than kind of helping move the agricultural system to a little a little better equity, so to speak, on both ends and both parties. And so we'll kind of let you talk a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and then dive into economics, and hopefully we'll stay awake, stay caffeinated, and have a good time with it. Thanks again for joining
1: us, Lisa. Awesome. Thanks, Chad. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. And the only reason economics and policy questions captured my attention when I was an undergraduate student was that human element. For me, economics is at the intersection of how humans act, how we've organized ourselves uh, in our lives historically and how that intersects with power and politics. And I think if we follow those lines, we definitely won't um have a snore fest here. And I promise there's many coffee stories in that mix as well. Yeah, a little d- bit about
0: Sorry just <laughs> jump in there. We definitely won't have a snore fest if we stick to politics and power.
1: So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um a little bit of background about me, my professional background is in international development programming, so thinking through how development assistance and economic development looks around the world. I currently work for a nonprofit called Trees for the Future, which supports farming communities integrating agroforestry techniques across West and East Africa. When I'm not thinking about those things, I love exploring local restaurants, catching up with family, friends, Um so yeah,
0: how did you? I mean, how did you get into this industry? Was it something you knew that you want to be able, like? Was there a certain event, or just you just kind of through life navigated yourself to here?
1: No, great question. Um, so, I was lucky enough as a teenager—I was fifteen or sixteen—to go on my first trip abroad uh, to Peru and. It totally opened my eyes to the fact that my idea of normal was a really narrow one and that a lot of people lived in totally different circumstances and that just intrigued me. Um, I studied abroad in East Africa in Uganda in college and kind of followed that through line. My M.O. is if anything, if people have a pat answer for why something is a certain way, I want to dig in. I want to be like, are you sure? sure. Is that true? I want to see it for myself. Um, And so that led me to explore kind of the history of really colonialism and how we've organized economics (laughs) historically. And so studying international relations, um, development economics, um, and learning about ways that um, I could work to kind of change those relational dynamics and work in international development in a way that really is partnership-based and is more focused on the needs of people in the Global South, frankly. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we'd we'd never do ourselves justice if we don't realize, you know, what we're a part of right and um economics is 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 huge right um it's easy to like romanticize any scenario when it comes to that like we all purchase stuff 24 7 and you know being in the specialty coffee i find it um fascinating because i you know like i realize And if I'm honest, like I've always struggled with being a part of, you know, a system that could easily be understood as like really negatively Um, and not necessarily specialty coffee, just consumerism, lifestyle. Like I own a restaurant and we have to engage with people 24-7 on consumption, right? And so, you know, we get a lot of questions on why is your coffee so expensive? And that's, that's truly helped me even start this podcast and, and why led me down to even doing this series. And I thought, man, we just need to talk about economics first off, you know, because not only do we not really truly understand the plant, like we don't understand how that plant gets here. Um, and so again, I'll say, you know, thanks for joining us. Um, Every conversation we've had up to this, like, it's truly been refreshing. Um, And also to know, like, you're excited about this topic, it it makes it super fun for me. Um, So if you wouldn't mind, just, like, help us kind of define a little bit of about economics, some of the terms we're going to use, and kind of maybe from there go into a little bit of the framework of the history and stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. Let's dive in. <laughs>
0: awesome. So
1: the coffee market we know today is a mix of historical trading patterns and the economics behind trading commodities and tropical commodities specifically. So I'm going to break down some of those terms, uh, talking about why we have markets at all, and then talk about that coffee market specifically. So Speaking of the human element of economics, long before the coffee plant or its precious beans were traveling around the globe, humans were already working to streamline how they exchanged goods. So that global project of simplifying trade and access to goods brought us a lot of economic frameworks that we take for granted. Those established trade routes, the creation of money and how to exchange it, and markets that have kind of their own norms and standards to trade different goods. So a market is, in economic terms, where buyers and sellers meet to exchange goods and services. So those transactions of buying and selling help establish the price for a given product or service. And I won't draw any supply and demand curves, but if you've taken Econ 101, <laughs> that's often where you end up next. Right. Um, So markets are typically, or used to be, physical places where you sold or bought goods. Right. And that human exercise of simplifying transaction is an old one. We have evidence as far as 4,500 BC of Sumerians creating tokens and tablets to trade commodities like livestock, metals, and agricultural crops. So you could take a token and agree to deliver your livestock at a later date. Um, which, if you think about it, would you rather carry that clay token <laughs> around or constantly bring your herd of goats or your bags of grain to the market before you know how much someone's willing to pay for them?
0: Yeah, nobody so, would, c- Nobody wants to sit around and carry livestock on their back. No. Uh, <laughs> no. And, and just to kind of, not that this is necessarily coffee or something, but... If you're, if anybody is really wanting to read, um, like true trade stuff or anything like that, like, I know you had some references, but also like Silk Road, anything like that, like just looking at just kind of patterns that we've developed like that over history is like, it's super fascinating. Kind of goes back to your point of just even talking about like out of sight, out of mind is, is... You know, until you truly experience things like, oh, man, I know we've heard about this, but seeing it, experience it, engaging with people, um, and now with technology, like, it's even more beautiful, like, speaking to producers, speaking to to farmers, it, it makes it more present for us to be able to, like, truly empathize and, like now know that, man, not only <laughs> are you human and we're connected, you know, cause it's so easy to forget about that, but like, we can be a part of each other's lives a little bit and truly know totally. the impact that we're making. Um, so s- sorry to like I- interrupt right in there, but, um, no,
1: no, that's, that's the thing. And we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I am a total podcast junkie. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm the person in a conversation who's like, Oh, yeah, I heard on a podcast, like, you know, there are some friends that roll their eyes at this point. Um, But I think I love the medium for all the reasons you just outlined narratives and people getting to tell their own stories is so important to me. And that's that's kind of how I relate to the world is I want to hear from you. I want to know what your experience is and I want to be in conversation. So, yeah, that's awesome.
0: That's super awesome. Um, (laughs) but as far as commodities, um, go and, and obviously they're, they're traded. There's so many different ways that they're traded. Um, and you were kind of suggesting about the, instead of bringing your cattle, have a token, um, you know, like, um, what else can you kind of
1: yeah totally and and I'll say that you know we're kind of breaking down these really basic economic terms and we will get to the coffee For sure I promise but I think I think it helps us understand why coffee is traded the way it is and and where we fit into that so commodities are commonly defined as raw goods so they include corn crude oil and obviously our favorite coffee And commodities are priced and traded based on a set of shared characteristics. So each unit of corn or crude oil or coffee traded around the world must meet specific quality and standards in order to be traded on a commodity market. And all that means is that that lump of coal or pound of sugar is uniform enough to be sold at the same price. So if I purchase that commodity halfway around the world, I have some sense that the security and certainty um, of that good will end up arriving consistently and as expected, and that allows large quantities of commodities to be bought and sold on a commodity market. And commodities are traded differently than than other goods we we consume, even goods that are produced on a large scale. So. Let's take an example of your next pair of jeans. Like, Are you willing to pay what you spent on your last pair of jeans just by knowing the size and maybe the color? Like, Jeans are not uniform. Right. So speaking for myself, <laughs> even the sizes used change company to company, same company year to year. I am going to try on that pair of jeans before I hand over my cash. Yeah. Um, and commodities are different because they're designed to trade uniform goods at that large volume and so while you might want to know and try on your jeans before you buy them, you probably don't feel the same way about the crude oil that ends up as gasoline in your car. It's just a different scale of a market.
0: And that's, it's super important. Like at this point to know, like it, in specialty coffee or just coffee in general, like it's an agricultural product, which is a whole nother beast because everybody's asked to, kind of produce the same year on year in because as consumers we want to know like or we get comfortable in like patterns of like what we like to consume right and so like man we want that coffee to taste this way and there's a lot of steps because you know people have to actually produce it by roasting the coffee but they have a lot to establish on their end for that. And like you are saying, totally. people that purchase it also want that reliability. Um, and not that though, we're really trying to tackle that today on how difficult that is, but it's, it's good to know. Um, like this is a year on product that like people have to recreate. So
1: absolutely. No, I love that. Yeah. Agricultural commodities, um, face a whole different Set of challenges and constraints. They're seasonal. They're subject to that frost in Brazil. You know, they, yeah. they totally have their own ebb and flow. Um, that's worth worth calling out. So, let's talk about that kind of coffee history aspect um, and how it shaped the coffee market. Instead, so. I think if our listeners have heard anything about coffee and trade, most stories begin with some classics, classic myths and rivalries. Um, without spending too much time on goats today, um, if listeners were to Google Kaldi, which is spelled K-L-D-I, and coffee, you're going to learn about some ancient stories about how humans fell in love with coffee, its caffeine content, and how quickly we started arguing about who found coffee, who roasted it first, Hi. and so on. And I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to settle those scores today. But what we know is that coffee emerged from its earliest cultivation in Ethiopia through trade routes that connected the Horn of Africa to the Arabian Peninsula, and then to Europe and Asia. And the scope of coffee's production and trade that we think about today expanded exponentially in the 17th and 18th centuries following the Dutch East India Company and other European colonial spice and slave trade routes. And I just want to acknowledge that that history has a lot to say to the means of coffee production. um, And in addition to... You know this discussion, there are some absolutely great podcasts out there. Filter Stories did a history of a uh, coffee podcast, a whole series. And then Bartholomew Jones of the Coffee Black podcast has a couple episodes about how coffee was stolen from these places um, and how it ended up in our cups. So just <laughs> worth yeah. calling out that history. For sure.
0: Um, and honestly, at some point, we hope to even deep dive back into some more of those things because like we've said before, like we can spend so much time on the history of, of coffee and kind of like how it's present day interaction and like, what is the same? What can we change? You know? Um, so definitely hope to jump back in with you on that deal for sure.
1: Totally. Yeah. So you know, coffee emerged from, from Ethiopia um, throughout places like Yemen and then to Java and Indonesia. Um, but as that demand grew for coffee, especially in Europe, coffee trade became more formalized and was often sold via auction. So in the port of Mocha in Yemen or Santos Santos in Brazil, coffee would be auctioned off to buyers And over time, some of that coffee trade moved to Europe. So, for example, in Amsterdam, they would bring the coffee back from Indonesia and sell it by auction in Amsterdam. And over time, these European-based auctions and warehouses developed in France and London, kind of shifting the location where coffee was collected, sorted, graded and then sold and by centralizing this process from all of these different ports around the the coffee belt where coffee is grown it created a more centralized market and set some standards for selling coffee coffee as a commodity and the U.S. was actually Um, home of this first really formal commodity coffee market or exchange in 1881. The coffee exchange of the city of New York was set up, and this eventually became um, a market for coffee, sugar, and cocoa by 1979. And the current market for coffee, the sea market, is traded on the Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE, which has its roots in the same New York market. And the coffee actually sold and purchased on this ice exchange is a small fraction of the total coffee trade, but that sea market price acts as the baseline or starting point for setting prices for Arabica coffee specifically around the world. And in economic terms, we would call that a benchmark price. So although the coffee sold on the ice <clears throat> sea market fits these narrow commodity standards where it has to be Arabica, it has to be unroasted, it comes from one of 20 countries, and it's available in one of eight warehouses where you can pick it up or drop it off. And it's sold at massive scale. So every commodity contract of coffee is about the size of one shipping container. Those standards allow a global price to be set Um, and commodity and futures markets have evolved to allow really sophisticated risk management tools, trading tools, which frankly would take a whole nother podcast (laughs) to define and discuss. Right. But the takeaway here is that depending on the coffee you're buying or brewing, your coffee may not be sold on that ice exchange and be a part of the formal C market, but Even the specialty coffee you and I are probably buying and drinking makes up a small fraction of global trade, about 10%. But the way that the other 90% moves around the globe and sets that sea market price has a big impact on coffee producers, buyers, roasters. Yeah, and and I think
0: that's huge to point out because if we're honest, everybody tries to use a benchmark, right? Um, And Risk management is huge. Don't like we can't take that lightly either because if the people that are investing are always losing, <laughs> that you know like the market doesn't work either. Um, but yeah, like the sea market is a huge topic, especially for what we're kind of live in, the specialty coffee scene. Because for so long, everybody tries to use that to purchase a much higher end coffee and and when you're so to speak a producer that wants to sell and not maybe have established relationships and kind of uncertainties like sometimes you're well <laughs> probably a lot more than sometimes you're on the losing end of that deal right like um you have somebody that can say well you know what for the next 10 years you're like I can be your source of buyer for all your coffee. And now you have this established like security blanket, but it's probably not the best security blanket. And so that's stuff like, it's great to know, like sea markets basically are, or what everybody for the most part consumes. And now our, like what I do for a living is definitely the opposite end of that. And so I think also like pe- when people ask us why is your coffee so expensive, you know, it goes back to that that question. You know, mm-hmm. well, like we're especially coffee scene, <laughs> and mm-hmm. this is not at every single diner in America. Um, so yeah. like, yeah. there's your variation. Like somebody bought this at a much higher price. It's a different coffee that you're consuming. And it's a weird conversation to, to have, right? Because a lot of times, if you're even asking that question, and it's not to make anybody feel bad, like, you have to, in a sense, train your palate to understand the nuances of what you should be experiencing. And that goes for wine, beer, like, yeah, and food. Like, I think food's a little easier because it's not normally as com- complex and a lot more like understandable how to translate like these cupping notes or brewing notes. Um, so while those are all combo, like super separate, like it's, it goes back to who we are as humans and what we drink every day. Um, so thanks for pointing that out. Like there's a huge dichotomy like C market standards versus like specialty coffee standards and in a like, beyond just a better product, like producers have to do (laughs) a lot more to like establish such a great product. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know whether it's helpful or not, but it, the reality is that that benchmark price, um, is where, almost all coffee pricing starts, and what's added to that is a differential in economic terms. So when you're valuing the coffee you're buying above or below maybe that C market bench price, and that principle holds whether you're buying large quantities of coffee for espresso pods or whether it's you buying coffee for your small specialty coffee you know shop, and the size of that differential, how much more you're willing to pay and why, is really important. For sure. And I think we've gotten to a place as a, especially coffee industry specifically, where we're trying to make that more transparent and we're trying to talk about why the differential whats what it is and what kind of factors are going into um, that differential. And sometimes that's the cost to the farmer. Sometimes it's um, about, a different type of sustainability like environmental sustainability but there's a lot of different values and for some time i think it was pretty opaque we kind of assumed we all had the same values right. and said those prices kind of made sense or were uniform and we're starting to get to a place where people are breaking it down for consumers for sure. and for people within the industry to say um what do we value and how much more than this benchmark are we willing to pay for it? Right.
0: And I I think that's a huge point because there's a lot of like diversity within specialty coffee. Right. And as a consumer, like you shouldn't be required to have to spend $30 for 16 ounces of coffee. Right. And you shouldn't have to say, well, I'm only drinking, it, I think we'll define this a little bit, like, but I'm only drinking something that's a value of 88 points plus. Yeah. Um, because if we're all honest, most people aren't spending enough time and like enjoyment for you like to say that's, that's not a trade-off for them. That's not equivalent for me to exchange my money for that because in, in reality, I put a little bit of sugar and I put a little cream on it and I'm going about my day. And I do want some specific flavors, but I don't need the 14 nuances in yeah. there.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so that's...
1: I believe, I believe in a wine drinker's bill of rights, um, which I stole from a wine book written by Dara Grumwald. I can find her full name. But there should be a coffee drinker's bill of rights, like you should get to enjoy the type of coffee that you love with your cream or your sugar. And we should still be able to talk about what that means for farmers, for consumers, for roasters. Um, And you should hopefully be able to understand why the prices are the way they are and why you would want one product or the other. Um, But I think it's important to recognize as an industry that we don't meaning, especially coffee industry, don't swing so far that we think everyone needs that 88 plus or 90 (laughs) plus point coffee to be happy. And, and that's a really, for me, it's really important for producers too, because I think we've held up, this is a bit of a tangent, but we've held up micro lots and these really high point coffees as A pathway for producers to make more money, but based on the seasonality and the size of those lots and buying relationships, it's really important to buy the 80 to 84 point coffee and pay the farmer for that as well. Um, because that represents such a huge portion of coffee that producers work really hard to produce at a high quality that they may or may not get paid for 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 that premium that it is because we're so hyper focused on one end.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I definitely don't want to spend all our time there because (laughs) like we said, you can talk nuances, but any niche market like is, is super difficult if you haven't done it your whole career as well. Right. So now year on end, we're asking people to producers, so to speak, to do something they've probably never done. Like, because we're asking for a new experience, um, something that goes beyond what we had last year. And you're asking them to take this huge risk of of learning and trying. Um, And and then knowing that this is where we want to take the consumer, right? Because um, if you don't have that experience, you don't know that you want that experience. And so like, you know, it's, so I won't like really spend that and try to steer it a little bit back to like the overall, uh, economics and market itself. But all these will always be questions. You know, when you're in the industry, like you want to be sustainable and it has to be sustainable for all parties. Right. Um, even if, if you're the person investing in that coffee and you buy all this coffee one time and you lose and now you're, out of the business because you took a huge risk and it didn't work for you. Like you're also not a part of that conversation anymore. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to do a lot in this world, right? Like engage with what we love. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, risk management's on everybody. So
1: totally. Yeah. I, so should we, t-
0: I think we go should go we talked a little bit about, Sea market and about mm-hmm. specialty coffee, but yeah. we probably should talk about like the actual grading. Like we've talked about grading coffee totally. and kind of haven't really defined that for people. So let's do that. Yeah,
1: we, we got a, we got ahead of ourselves a little bit. And I do want to say that this is totally an overview. We're kind of scratching the right. surface of coffee trade history. There's major historical trends of global production you know, where most coffee has come from. We've touched on kind of the centuries of um, enslaved or forced labor that made that coffee possible. And then there's this whole era of international coffee agreements like the International Coffee Organization's 1968 agreement, which set out production quotas. And if listeners are super interested in those topics, I do want to recommend two books, The Coffee Paradox, by Deviren and Ponte, and Cheap Coffee by Carl Weinhold. Um, But for the sake of kind of keeping it at what does this mean for me as a coffee drinker, let's try to compare kind of those two different markets and, and what it means for the sustainability of the industry. And maybe we'll do it by talking about similarities and differences because I think getting to that question of grading and quality differences is is important. So the fact is that whether you're drinking commodity or commercial coffee in your local diner or you're drinking specialty coffee, they do share some similarities. So coffee is produced in countries along the equator where I would argue both commodity and specialty coffee can be sourced from anywhere where coffee is thriving. And both... Sectors of this bigger global market share some key value chain actors, which totally contribute to to price, meaning there's specific roles or firms or individuals that play a part in getting that coffee from the farmer to the final consumer. They can be aggregators, meaning bringing together larger volumes of coffee. They can be processing that green coffee, um, trading it Exporting it, they can be at the port and be responsible for that warehousing or shipping of the coffee. Importers who are bringing it into a new country, warehouses and transportation companies, roasters, wholesalers, and retailers. And so, while a firm might specialize in one type of coffee in its own idiosyncratic way of doing business, the basic processes and roles are often the same across those two sectors, and. I do want to say that um, although these markets are at different scales and might have different structures, they're both designed to get coffee with various quality to the right buyer, to the person that wants to buy and sell that coffee. Like we said, you know, whether you're that diner cup of coffee or you're, you're that specialty buyer, they're definitely designed to get coffee where it needs to go. And So on the quality side, I think this is kind of one one key difference, right? So some differences are between conventional or commodity coffee and specialty coffee are often quality, the market priorities, and then buyer relationships. So if we talk about that quality ranking, one of the main drivers of price differences between conventional and specialty coffee is Quality. And quality can be measured in a lot of different ways. Sometimes um, it's just about coffee defects or the absence of them or other physical properties. Um, But one of the main frameworks we use are cupping quality scores. So these, as you know better than I, are set out by the Alliance for Coffee Excellence, the Specialty Coffee Association. And they generally define specialty coffee as scoring 80 points or higher on a hundred point scale.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, You know, like, and not that we'll spend a lot of time on this, but like people spend their entire lives to grade this coffee. Right. And so that's all they do is drink coffee and train themselves to be able to kind of like know the differences. Um, all the and minute nuances that most none of us truly know and take the time to observe on a regular basis um, is the end consumer. And so, yeah. you know, like that's where it kind of is that gap. Like um, I think the pendulum kind of always swings of like, You know, where do we go from here? Like, what are we truly trying to send a message to? Like, who are we trying to resonate with? Are we trying to get, like, 5% of people? 1% of people? (laughs) And so, like, you know, specialty coffee is, you know, uh, I can't imagine, like, what they're trying to deal with. But they've helped establish all of our futures, you know? Like, and so... We're learning as much as they are. Like, um, how much does that resonate with myself, who drinks coffee every day and tries to to improve, um, to to know how to like share that information with our everyday consumer and like, what should we be excited about? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, it's a it's a crazy message, right, to to send to people, like, because we've all seen these things shift within specialty coffee. Like make sure it's all these super like sour acidic coffees to like, no, I don't know. Like only brew this way. (laughs) And so while that has to like, it's not technically economics, like, but that's the end user. Um, and, and so it's crazy conversations to have. And I can only imagine like same goes for the, the buyer right? Like, yeah, let's establish this relationship because it's the best way to go. And like, well, never done that before. Um, sorry to kind of go on that, that, that tangent, but it brings us back to like, when we're setting, we're, we're grading these coffees on a, like you're saying, um, defects are, are huge because that brings us consistency. Um, but also like, they're looking for all these flavors, right? And so, yeah. um, and now processing is this whole new kind of like True. weird element of like grading coffees. And, and honestly, it could be, I'm not a farmer, but like in my brain, like it kind of makes it exciting now because I could, I could theoretically have different flavor profiles, so to speak, with one product. Um, and you know, like, I don't know. I know there's a ton of challenges, but you know, I've never had to (laughs) mess with those. So I don't really know if that's good or bad, but we hope to bring on a producer and kind of help to like establish like likes and dislikes of kind of about where we're at with coffee and the future of like what production looks like a little bit on that. Um,
1: yeah and what that relationship looks like I think you've pointed out a couple times just recognizing what you're asking of producers um, and how they how those different processing options and opportunities can translate to one grade of coffee kind of having totally different flavor profiles um, is really exciting but what mechanisms do we need to have in place for information to be shared for there to be some kind of partnership of this year, I'm willing to try this and next year I'll try this, you know, just a dialogue. Right.
0: And I, Um, I, I definitely think that's important for people to understand. Like we're talking about numbers, which then equates to dollars, but also in specialty coffee, like you don't necessarily have to operate that ridge. Right. Right. I can Mm -hmm. deal with the producer for the next 25 years and say, let's establish a framework that works for us. Like what will help you be more successful for me to then sell this coffee or even better translate to, to my end user, like what they'll want it for. Um, yeah. And so it's, I think, And I, I mean, we know specialty coffee is dealing with this, right? Like does this full on number scale? Is this like the complete absolute? And I, you know, like how will they not deal with that? Because you're asking humans to grade this coffee and, and trust me, it's intricate. Like it's not just one person sipping a cup of coffee to decide what the value of coffee is. Um, but it also begs that question that will always be begged: like human interaction with having individual experiences have to come back and write a number down that is normal enough for everybody to agree on. Um, so, yeah. and, and we can learn, we can go into that longer and later about Q grading and like how people establish that framework to even be a part of this conversation um, because nobody takes it lightly.
1: True. But true. Yeah. And I think you're touching on kind of these different market priorities between the two sectors. So quality has become essentially, I would argue at this point in time, the key priority and focus of specialty coffee. But there are other priorities that define and differentiate commodity and specialty coffee and on the conventional or commodity market side, buyers are trying to guarantee availability throughout the year. Right. I know both, both sectors do, but when you go to the diner or you are at your chain hotel, um, you know, you have to have a clear repeatable product and while Conventional coffees can be purchased from smallholders or cooperatives. They're often purchased from industrial or larger producers who can produce that coffee at a lower cost. And so prices and low prices are often a a driver, but I think they exist for both. And um, that consistency year-to-year year is important in both sectors, but I think you've also alluded to this push within specialty coffee of an interest in that next new thing, finding that next new um, type of processing, as well as, I would say, the last 15, 10 to 15 years, storytelling and marketing about the farmer is also really, really central. And then there's sustainability efforts um, from fair trade to environmental conservation. Um, So there's definitely kind of some key differences in what each sector is seeking out and prioritizing.
0: Yeah. And that's when I first was like, let's do economics. I was like, I don't even know how to like keep it basic because it just feels like you can go everywhere, but like, because at the end of the day, like, there's so many different markets, right? And so um, this framework is is great. And, and I don't know where or who listens to this and where they land in the market. But definitely the intentions are not to tell you where you should be at in the market. We just want to define, like, the commodity and and. and ha- And kind of a little bit, like you said, like we didn't touch enough to like really allude to a lot, but, um, because it's, it's so lengthy, um, but it's, this is great stuff to know because it can help us know where the future comes, um, how we can become a little more involved or just be like, oh man, that totally makes sense. And now I look at coffee differently as a whole, um, Besides, I don't know. Where do you think should we talk a little bit about like our relationship, and or do you want to talk a little bit about the producer? Are there more things that you would like to define?
1: Um, yeah, maybe those buyer relationships and kind of how they play out. I think we've alluded to this, but maybe kind of spelling that out. Um, because I think maybe I'll talk a little bit about conventional coffee and then you can kind of tell us what, what it's looked like in specially coffee for you, but you know, conventional coffee markets are highly consolidated. They're these big trade houses, big multinational companies and they're high volume transactional relationships. I'm going to swap out, you know, the Brazil Robusta for the Vietnamese for price only, you know, they're, Con- they're looking to achieve consistent low price purchases sure. and big players include names you probably have heard at- of, but listeners may also not have heard of these cause they're kind of behind, um, the scenes. So you have right. like trade art traders like Olam and Ecom, but then you have roasters like JDE Peets, which owns a ton right. of smaller companies. There's also Nestle, um, So yeah, those are big, big players. But I think by contrast, especially coffee has been at least for the past 15 plus years emphasizing stronger relationships between buyers and producers. Right.
0: Um, And I I do think I'll try to share some of the, if you're cool with some of the information you've sent me that would kind of show like a little bit of a pie chart understanding of like what you're talking about, like. Definitely. um because you can't dismiss markets because they're so intertwined in the sense of like you know like I don't know for me like Starbucks for example like in even though they're so big now like I don't feel like specialty coffee would be where it is if they wouldn't have taken so many people on this new journey of of coffee um, and that's just one of the biggest companies that I can think about. But there, there's other, obviously, companies that are in that scope that have done the same thing, especially um, regionally, um, like mm-hmm. Duncan Brother. Like, there's there's a lot of big players that have kind of changed the game for coffee consumption. And also, you know, like, raise the price for the Mm -hmm. end consumer and you know obviously most businesses name of the game is to figure out how to to make profit um so we're not here to really discuss that and like have they done what we feel they should have done um but without them i don't feel like specialty coffee like the experience driven understanding of like cafes would exist like they exist now um and small business, um, we all know most people don't do it for profit alone. So like kind of that's that friction and rub for everybody. Um, And like you said, specialty coffee has come a long ways because people now interact with the farmers um, through various formats that they never would have been able to, but now they have this harmonious relationship and understand like bettering the farmer. Um, And I think that's kind of where specialty coffee really separates itself is that most people, I don't know, there's farm co-ops with other agricultural products that really are trying to invest in the farmer as well. But especially coffee is, and so while we're reinvesting into what we believe in, we're also telling the consumer that they have to join us in that belief mm-hmm. system. And so I, I think it's a tough conversation, but one we continue to have. Um, how do, like how yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like we're every year on year, like I you know we always use those terms of inflation and all that stuff and like so it's an easier conversation to have of why the price should change Mm -hmm. but we're making it more uncomfortable in specialty coffee by saying no no no, that's not why you should have the conversation like Mm -hmm. these people need living wages and and like that's a it's a you know just like with the hospitality scene and being a waiter or like being Mm -hmm. a barista like we all want to like dumb down things and say, well, that's just that, like that's their career path or that's whatever. But like the conversation is a lot of for farmers, especially in the coffee, like a lot of their career paths were like given to them because it's a family relational dynamics um, and we all consume it. And we all enjoy and benefit it. And so it's just, you know, a tough conversation to have. But a little bit of why I love specialty coffee is because of that. Like the relational Mm -hmm. aspect is actually present. It's available. um, We can all grow and learn and connect and, and feel hopefully more whole as humans. Whereas like if I'm going to Target, so to speak, like I'm not looking for that relationship that's not something of why i'm there like mm-hmm. like it kind of goes back to what you're saying like if you want the always the conventional system i think on some end like you're never going to be feel comfortable in the specialty coffee scene um,
1: yeah yeah i think the the good news is that coffee and specialty coffee specifically has kind of led the way on some of this like even talking to colleagues in the cacao space you know other um industries where they're trying to think through this relationship in their global value chain um you know there's a lot of initiatives and lessons to learn from you know the specialty coffee was early in developing those sustainability certifications like fair trade and organic and A lot of those initiatives sought to address the social, economic, and environmental challenges for producers. And consumers prioritized those. And because of their demand, even the Starbucks of the world, who played a huge role in, you know, especially coffee's third wave, um, and Nespresso, which is a part of Nestle, a huge, huge, huge global player followed that consumer demand to develop their own standards. And so I think the question for coffee consumers now to your point of like promoting this dialogue it, between consumers and retailers of coffee is how do we build a coffee market that can meet the need of producers of consumers to ensure a sustainable supply of coffee for another couple of centuries. Right. Um, And those, those relationships um, are often categorized as direct trade or relationship coffee models um, have been working to deliver higher quality coffee while offering those price premiums to producers. Um, But I think the, the next challenge for us is how do we make sure these standards and these relationships are, you know, empowering and lifting up the voice of producers whose perspective might not have been involved in early, you know, sustainability standards when it was more top down. And how do we um, critically like take the lessons learned from these initiatives that are at this point are 20, 25, you know, years old and have grown exponentially to say like, okay, what, what do we want to see as an industry? And what do consumers want to see? And I had the privilege of teaching a um, class at the university of California Davis with um, some undergrads and it was called just coffee little pun and play on words, is it just a cup of coffee? And is it a just cup of coffee? And I was a teaching assistant and interacting with undergrads, whether they were coffee drinkers or not, um, definitely opened my eyes to these shifts in consumer patterns of like what the expectation is and no tolerance for greenwashing and like really wanting to push this conversation in this industry forward in a way that, um, gives me a lot of kind of hope for, for what that looks like.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think the beauty of it really is like you're alluding to is like, it's the honest dialogue. There's going to always be a lot of, I think, uncomfortable conversations to be had. Um, but I, I do like the beauty of the shift between, 10 years ago in specialty coffee, so to speak, it was like you drink this kind of like pretentious way of nuances to now. Like we really shifted and like we've really understood like how to develop our market is by engaging and having honest open conversations and saying, you know, like start here because everybody does, you know, drink it the way you want to drink it. Um, but we're going to engage and kind of continue this movement of like what what we live for you know and like even within the cafe system it's the same way like baristas individually do the same thing right you learn all this new information and now you want everybody to love it as much as you love it but it's just a lot broader Um, yeah and so for us, like I, I hope that we can just continue to engage with like, where do we want coffee to be? Like you're saying in 20 years, and like, I think we have to be honest in saying, well, what we want, can we sustain that? And we mm-hmm. have to, we have to go back to the farmers and producers and be, and really honestly say, is this realistic? Because I think when we hear about, um drought or coffee not being around like it's so it's not tangible for us to to truly understand because you hear the doom and gloom stories um and nothing is truly i don't know present for us to really understand and like we're not all gonna fly to coffee farms and like experience that notion and so i think that even needs to be more real like what's truly sustainable Mm -hmm. for us to consume the way we want to consume um,
1: yeah yeah so. and how much do you value this experience that you tap into um and what is that what does that look like to assess how it's valued and and learn about where that value is shared along along the the value chain and i think i do want to point to the fact that coming from an academic background Cause I was, I was just a coffee consumer for most, most of my, even adult life. My, my parents didn't drink coffee. So it was kind of my own exploration of, you know, that first frozen mocha, Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I always sought out coffee shops as a high schooler in an undergrad and as an adult as like a way to explore my community, you know, which coffee shop did I want to study in? Which one did I want to have a conversation with friends? You know, I love the spaces that specialty coffee has created. Um, and I think my introduction and intersection of my international development kind of career interest in coffee really started in grad school um, where a fellow grad student Evie Smith, invited me to design a research project with coffee producers and uh, technical assistance providers that were working with coffee farmers in Guatemala. And that collision of those personal and professional interests kind of hooked me on much more than caffeine and the cafes and, and really gave me a front row seat to say, what do we know about what's happening on the ground and and what do we know about these initiatives that maybe as a consumer, I, especially given like when I was consuming specialty coffee for the first time, like whether, like I alluded to at the beginning, like you've got a simple answer, like, oh, look, farmer on a poster in the shop. Like things are going great. And I was like, hold on, let's dig into that. Um, But I think what I want to point out is that that distance we've come is, you know, um, the industry is having to be more transparent about how things work, about what their personal values are, um, for each shop or, or kind of each even bigger, um, regional and and national brands. But from a research perspective, People are studying this. You know, we do have answers, both in the industry and in academic spaces. And Janina Grabs is one of my, my favorite researchers. Her work and the work of others has found that um, limited demand for certified coffee, fair trade, organic, rainforest alliance, kind of this first wave of, of standards, actually results in lower returns to producers because farmers are investing in these really specific types of production that are costly and they might only be able to sell less than half of their total crop for that premium. And so, um, and then for another example in the relationship coffee trade space, which has been studied less, but, but is, has been researched, you know, (laughs) a small number of people tend to benefit from the, some of these, um, relationships and, so well, if we know these things just like
0: you're saying, certifications <laughs> as a whole mm-hmm. are super tough for producers. We have a local yeah. milk farmer that's like, you know, I don't do certain certifications because I live in a town of Meeker where they can't even afford my milk if I do that. Yeah. So like yeah. I'm not gonna do that to my end user mm-hmm. just to slap this label on it. You know, like I know what I'm, I know what I'm producing and it is that, but I can't afford that for them, you know? So that's.
1: Yeah. Well, and if we let the dairy, you know, producers in the States make those calls, I think we also have to let the coffee producers make those calls and, and as consumers broaden our sense of what the pathways are and what we're willing to pay for, for that that experience and what that what that looks like along a range of, of offerings. But yeah, I think there's there's a, a reckoning seems a little strong, but it's time to it's time to look at what we've done and it's time to look at the people that have studied it. And it's time to come together as as an industry and say, what do we know? What lessons have we learned and what do we want to achieve? And then kind of change some of these patterns of extractive or top-down power dynamics and involve kind of producers and consumers in a real way so that we can build a sector that is more equitable and and shares power and value um, in a way that lets it grow and continue to grow and question our own place in that.
0: Yeah man, thanks again. This is, uh, I could, you know, talk about this forever and just talking with you makes you just want to continue to talk about your passion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's what I love to do. And I, and I just hope that even each of us just continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding, because I think that's when, like you're saying, we don't have to just create a poster. We don't have to just create a certification to appease the market. But once the mar- market is educated enough to know what they're consuming, I think it could give us all a lot more freedom to to invest in what we find value in, um, and and to know at the end of the day what we're investing is is making the impact that we truly hope that we're investing in. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Because that's there's nothing worse than asking somebody that wants to believe in a certain value system and buy into that. And they find out that it's not producing what they believe in. Um, So, like, if you do love farmers and you you think that you're giving them more money, but you're not, because Mm -hmm. the poster says and alludes to, you know whatever fair trade direct trade like doesn't mm-hmm. always mean that that's what you're doing or getting um like as a consumer so thanks for sharing um your knowledge um it's been great you want to end on anything
1: no i i mean i think first of all thank you so much for having me and letting me kind of talk about my favorite <laughs> things to talk about sure. but i i think the to build on your last point you know Consumers have the power to both do that research and demand differently and let their dollars, you know, speak. I think the the systemic questions um, require systemic answers, but I never want people to feel like they don't have that, you know, purchasing power. They they do, Um, but they also can focus their, their studies, their careers, or their advocacy around these issues in a way that um, your individual cup that you buy, whether it's every day or every week, is, is meaningful and, and that you kind of take that learning on the, the bigger picture stuff and um, find an outlet for that. And if, if people um, want to talk more about that, I'd love for them to reach out. I'm always here to have those conversations.
0: Thanks again for hanging out with us, going on the tangents with us. Um, We appreciate you. We hope you have a wonderful holidays and stay caffeinated. Enjoy one another. Reach out to us if you have any questions. Cheers.